much talked about just transition plan designed to move workers to greener more sustainable jobs has been unveiled with a new name now called the sustainable jobs plan the initiative was released with little fanfare and light on details according to critics i'm dave breakenridge and this is 10-3 tyler dawson national post reporter and producer of this podcast joins me to discuss what the sustainable jobs plan covers what it's lacking and why it's still ruffling feathers in alberta Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Amazon Music. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about the show. So Tyler, after weeks of debate over the Fed's controversial Just Transition plan, it was finally unveiled by the Liberal government, but Canadians could be forgiven if they missed it. What did you make of the fact that they decided to roll it out on the same day as the inquiry report into the use of the Emergencies Act to quell the Freedom Convoy protest in Ottawa last year. Do you think that that was calculated to avoid a lot of attention or just bad timing? You know, it's almost like a cliche in the journalism world that Friday afternoon news dump when you try and get stuff you don't want people to pay attention to out the door kind of late on a Friday when everyone's paying attention to other stuff or already have sort of one foot on the long into the long weekend. Um, you have to think that it was at least somewhat intentional, you know, going into a long weekend, there was this other huge thing happening. And then this report came out. So I mean, I I would be speculating if I I said either way, but it, you know, if there's smoke, there's fire. And uh, certainly this is this is smoking a little bit, I'd say. Yeah, so we finally get this plan. And it is an issue that as mentioned off the top, it caused a lot of controversy, especially out west where oil and gas is big business. And there's concern about what it means for the future of these high paying jobs out in Alberta. Does what's called now the sustainable jobs plan detail how we're going to get to this new green energy future? Sort of. First thing I'll address is, is like you said, it's now called the sustainable jobs plan. And this, I, I think, is probably in reaction to the sort of outrage over the fact that it was called the just transition plan. You know, if you talk to critics of that terminology, they say, you know, this this implies that the, the work people are doing in the oil and gas sector is in some way unjust. And Sonia Savage, um, I think is the environment minister in Alberta and, and was previously the energy minister, said, you know, that that there's this sense among Albertans that just transition implies, you know, sort of the phasing out of jobs. Um, so, so there has been this change in terminology. Um, whether that's putting lipstick on a pig or or coming up with something entirely new, I think remains to um, the interpretation of uh, individual Canadians. But but that name change has happened, um, which is, is just sort of worth noting. Now, the other big thing to know about the plan in, in terms of, you know, what is going to happen is that this is not really a down in the weeds sort of outline of how things are going to go. Um it's it's a pretty broad overview or vague overview if you'd like and and it basically outlines 10 different sort of areas of action um and and so there's going to be a sustainable jobs secretariat there's going to be economic strategies through regional energy and resource tables they're calling them um a sustainable jobs training stream under the union training and innovation program um there's going to be indigenous-led solutions labor data market collection you know finding investors um there's going to be legislation to ensure what they call ongoing engagement and accountability so there's all these 
things um, happening. And and the other thing to note is that a lot of them have already been created or budgeted for. What is primarily new about this is that it's collected all of these things into one place um, and, and sort of explained what they all are. But but most of this stuff is not, you know, particularly new. Is the fact that there there's not a ton of detail other than kind of these these big picture strategies or plans, does that, has that caused any, you know, concern among industry experts, things like that as to, you know, well, we want to know what you're going to do with, with our, our jobs, our future, our economic security, like where's the rest of it? Yeah. You know, and sort of along those lines, when Premier Danielle Smith put out her statement on this, on, on the day it came out, which would have been Friday, the thought that have been the 18th or something like that, 17th, 16th. She she said, look, this makes no mention of LNG as a, you know, a major possible avenue of emissions reduction in Canada that would, you know, sort of help displace dirtier forms of energy and, and still provide for growth in the oil and gas sector. So, you know, I think it, to some extent that was a complaint about the lack of specifics in the plan. Um, but you also have to wonder whether or not the sort of lack of specifics in it um, really makes it a lot more challenging to pick it apart. You know, there was that memo that uh, everyone was all worked up about a few weeks ago now that, you know, sort of listed the number of jobs that are sort of related to the oil and gas sector. And that was taken as, oh, my goodness, they're going to be eliminating, you know, 200,000 jobs kind of thing. So I guess it's a bit of a a bit of a catch 22. You know, you, you want to see specifics on numbers of jobs created, number of jobs expected to be lost or affected and what the government's going to do. But if you put those numbers out there, then it makes it far, far easier for critics to start sort of blowing holes in your plan. Um, so I think there's, you know, there's maybe a little bit of the method method to the madness here in sort of keeping this as a pretty high level summary. And, and the other reason for that is that this is an interim plan. This is going to cover sort of the next two years, 2023 to 2025, and there's going to be continued sustainable jobs plans coming out every, I think, five years after that until sort of the net zero target of 2050. So maybe we'll get more in-depth detail in, in a couple of years here. But um, yeah, at the moment, I think it probably doesn't have some of the detail that the people, you know, both critics and supporters probably wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is a, a political document. This is something coming from the federal government. Looking at the political reaction to this, did it break down as predictably as one would expect with with the conservatives coming out and, and rallying against the whole notion of it and then the NDP cheerleading it? it or what did the, the opposition parties have to say about it? Yeah, it, it was fairly predictable. Um, you know, Pierre Polyev was asked about it and, and he said, you know, Vladimir Putin is smiling today. This is going to displace oil and gas production um, to, you know, sort of the, the classic ethical oil argument of, of you know, oil dictatorships and things like that. Um, and then the New Democrats said, you know, they're pleased to see that the government is moving ahead with this, and and but they want to make sure that these sort of good words translate into actual actions and spending and, and reality of some sort. So I think very much predictable. Um, that said, the opposition conservatives have not said as much about it as I would have expected. You know, I wrote a story about this on Monday and went through Pierre Polyev's Twitter and Facebook feeds, and and there was actually nothing there about it. To, to find that comment of his, I had to go in and watch the video of his press conference that he gave about the Emergencies Act report. So, which is 
sort of strange. You know, this feels like a, a real softball moment for the conservatives. Um, and, and they didn't really take a full swing at it. And I'm not really sure why that's the case. You mentioned previously, Daniel Smith did put out a pretty damning statement of it, um, about it on Friday. Smith has been the most outspoken on it. I know that she had tried to, she had tried to work collaboratively with the federal government. I guess she wrote some letters to Justin Trudeau offering advice on what she feels needs to be in it. What's her big takeaway from it? And did her attempts at communication with the federal government about changes to it, is there any indication that that paid off other than the name change? Well, her big point has sort of been that this needs to be very collaborative between the provinces and also that the provinces need to sign off on any sort of plan that is going to proceed. I, I suspect it's rather unlikely that she's going to get something quite that um, quite that much sort of a veto power, shall we say, over it. But but certainly her, her argument and the argument that her ministers have been making, Brian Jean and Peter Guthrie, um, has been that Alberta really needs to be consulted thoroughly. We need to have considerable input into the development of this plan and so on and so forth. Have they got anything out of it? That's a good question. I mean, she sat down with Trudeau at the uh, I believe it was the first minister's meeting a couple weeks ago now and sort of had highlighted her concerns. Um, and, and you mentioned the letters, which did seem to set a, a slightly different tone from the premier's office. You know, a month ago, a month and a half ago, she was really, really aggressively opposed to this in, in quite strong and arguably inflammatory language. And, and there has been, I think, a moderation a little bit um, in her letters and in some of her public statements. So, you know, I think there's probably a few things happening there. The first being that there's an election coming up and that sort of really fiery rhetoric, rhetoric might only work um, so far. And and also that the other thing that you notice when you look through the plan is just like scads of money, um, like huge, huge sums of money be, that have been doled out for programs of this sort over the last few years, last eight years, shall we say. And and no doubt Alberta wants some of that money. So there is, I think, probably the, the uh, a desire in the premier's office to you know, a little bit get their cake and eat it too. You know, they, they want to be bullish and, and boisterous um, from the bully pulpit, but they also want to make sure that they're uh, ensuring that Alberta's interests are represented and that they're going to, you know, get some of the money, some of the training and, that, and stuff like that um, that's coming out of all of this. So it, it's, a, I think, a little bit of a strange situation for for the Alberta government and any future Alberta government, because they do sort of need to have it both ways, you know, politically and then <laughs> as a matter of uh, governance as well. We'll be right back. I know that in the past, Justin Trudeau and even Prime Minister Stephen Harper have talked about some long-distant future when we phase out oil production in this country, whether it's 100 years down the line or, you know, some people say that Canada may need to do it sooner. Does this report talk about doing away with oil and gas entirely in the short term? Does it acknowledge a need for that industry's existence going forward? You know, we're still driving gasoline-powered cars, we're still running uh, electrical plants off natural gas. Does it acknowledge there's that need, current need, and potentially even growing need as we look to export to other markets, our energy? 
yes. So what it does sort of say is that there are major economic opportunities in other things. Um, but it, it does say sort of between this, so 2050 is sort of the target year for net zero. And, and what the report says is there's going to be a continuing but declining demand for oil and gas in conventional combustion applications. Um, and that producers that can offer sort of the lowest carbon emissions products will have, you know, a significant advantage, advantage in the market. Um, you know, things like liquid natural gas, for example, which is not mentioned, but it, obviously that's an example of it. Um, and, and that there's also going to be significant oil use still. I think they predict about 24 million barrels of oil per day, but that's a quarter of today's consumption. And, and it predicts that the the big change after 2050 will be in how oil is used, you know, no longer for combustion applications such as cars, buses, things like that, but in other things, petrochemicals, asphalt, lubricants, solvents, you know, stuff like that. And, and it also predicts over the years a declining um, demand for natural gas. So the, the idea is that there's going to be this declining use of hydrocarbons but that doesn't mean that it's going away entirely. Um, but but what the government seems to think is that the competitive advantage for Canada um, is going to be producing these things at, a, at as low an emission as possible. That'll be you know more competitive on the on the world market. It also talks about where the government sees sort of major economic advantages in other things. You know, it, it says that. Canada's battery supply chain could create between 60,000 and 250,000 jobs by 2030. It predicts that the clean energy sector is growing, going to grow by 3.4% annually over the next decade, which is about four times faster than the Canadian average. So, so it, it's predicting this decline on one hand of conventional oil and gas, and at the same time, um, this growth in the clean energy sector. And, and so obviously to sort of bring the whole thing around, the whole idea of the just transition is, well, how do you take the, these people who are working in conventional oil and gas production and adjacent fields and somehow, you know, shoehorn them into this emerging clean energy economy? And, and so, you know, so that's the, that's the entire purpose of this. But, you know, there has, you're right, there has been talk about phasing out oil and gas, um, you know, when, when this was first sort of being talked about this time around, back in January, you know, the Alberta government came out and said, look, this is a plan to phase out the oil and gas sector. Um, and and it's, it's, I think, fair to say not, but certainly it's, you know, guiding and perhaps facilitating and certainly acknowledging that there is going to be an evolution and perhaps a decline in that sector. Yeah. And I mean, as you, as you just mentioned, this is a plan that involves transitioning people from one kind of job to another kind of job. And when it comes to the actual transition of workers, I'm I'm curious a how it addresses the concern that their skills may not apply and how it will retrain them. B is there a worry about the economic security that would go from making $200,000 a year in an oil field job to possibly less in a in another green job? And then does it take into account past failings in transitioning workers from one industry into another? I'm, I'm thinking of fisheries in out east and, and even coal production. Does it does it take into account how the government hasn't done a good job in those areas? Um, sort of is the answer to all of those. So what the report predicts or the plan predicts is that Canada is actually going to see more jobs in the clean energy sector or these sustainable jobs than 
there will be workers to fill them. So there there will be a, a, a gap there. It doesn't put numbers on that, though, which is rather notable. And, and it also talks, you know, a bunch about well-paying, decent jobs. And again, it doesn't specify what those are. You know, is that a $150,000 job with a clean energy company or is it, you know, a $60,000 job with a clean energy company? Um, you know, there's there's no mention in there of what do you know, what do benefits look like? What do vacations look like? So, you know, I, I have this, you know, I kind of want to put in a phone call to the federal government and say, hey, you guys are talking a lot about decent, well-paying jobs. What in your view is a decent, well-paying job? Because people make a fair bit of money in the oil and gas sector. And, and I think crucially, um, you can make a lot of money in the oil and gas sector without being necessarily an engineer or a highly skilled tradesperson, you know, and, and that is, that's changed over the past 10, 15 years. Um, but there certainly was a time when um, laborers made quite a bit of money and how is that going to transfer over? So there is a lot of talk about training. Um, you know, there might be training through workplaces, there might be training through uh, education programs, things like that, and but it, and apprenticeships, but it also talks about, um, you know, that a lot of the skills that people might have that they are using every day in the oil and gas sector might actually transfer over all right. You know, if you're working in an oil refinery and you go work on a hydrogen project, perhaps you already have a lot of those skills. So so the, the plan is sort of generally to to have various training programs um, by unions and, and trade schools and things like that. Um, there's a specific fund for, for training for people with disabilities. But, but the, the plan, you know, sets out parameters by which these sort of trends will be analyzed and converted into training programs. Um, but to, I think your third question had sort of been, you know, is, does it take into account any of the sort of the socioeconomics of um, a possible major shift in incomes? And, and I wouldn't say it does. You know, and I, I talked to a fellow for a story I wrote about it who said, you know, look, there, there's actually, you can make the argument that you might be better off making, I don't know, 80 grand a year, but you're working, you know, closer to home for five days and then you get your weekends off as opposed to working you know, two weeks on and then some time off, something like that. And you're going back and forth from Fort McMurray or whatever. Um, so there isn't very much of that in here. And, you know, I think to some extent, that's probably a pretty tough sell for politicians to say, oh, no, actually, you're, you know, you're going to be better off if you take a pay cut because you'll be closer to home and things like that, which it may be true. But, um, you know, it's a pretty hard thing to sell to people. So it, it isn't quite there yet. And you, and you have to wonder if some of these numbers and definitions and conversations are, are going to start happening as this thing moves along. I mean, what's the next step for this? I imagine the government has to sell this plan to Canadians or promote it. And, you know, I believe in the story you wrote shows that, you know, a large majority of Canadians like have never even heard of the just transition plan. So like, is that the next big hurdle for the federal government in this? I think that's certainly part of it. Um, and and the, the thing about this too is how regional it is, right? You know, the, the bulk of oil and gas production is in Alberta, um, but there is also some in BC, some in Saskatchewan, and there's some in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador as well. So so it's, it's really regional in that sense. Um, and there's some pretty serious baked in political biases and implications of that regionalization, I think, that, that they're going to need to confront. And, and, you know, part of it is probably going to be getting union leadership on board. Part of it's probably going to be getting companies' corporate support for this, which 
And, and both of those things, I think, are reasonably well progressing. The big hurdle for this in a lot of ways is going to be political buy-in from provincial leadership, I think. And it's, it's I, I, I mean, I think I'd be sitting in the prime minister's office making a lot of money if I had a, a great idea on how they're going to go about doing that. But, but I think that's probably a huge, huge hurdle um, for the feds here. And, and what, they're going to do to actually pull this off. You know, the, the the analyst I talked to told me that, you know, look, if if the government creates good policy that starts creating jobs, um, no one's really going to be able to object to that and undo that if there's a change in government at the federal level. The the issue is whether or not this all starts to sort of fall apart and whether it doesn't work and and how proactive it is. And oh, you you'd mentioned earlier the the Newfoundland example of, of the sort of the moratorium on the cod fishery and and what he'd said was that previously Canada's attempts at this sort of transition has been have been really really reactive. Something goes quite badly wrong and the government is scrambling to figure it out. In this instance, there's the potential for the government to, you know, be a little more proactive and look ahead and and figure these things out before it becomes a crisis um and and so i think there's going to be a lot of political buy-in necessary buy-in from workers themselves and you know an understanding i think on the part of politicians that people are not going to be (laughs) super keen on this and, and how to navigate all of that well we'll see how this unfolds over the coming months and even years tyler thanks for your time thanks for having me 10-3 is produced by tyler dawson theme music by bryce hall Thanks to Tyler Dawson. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.